You're listening to episode 15 of the We Got the Runs podcast. In this episode, we'll learn all about how to get fast and what actually goes on in our bodies. Welcome to the We Got the Runs podcast. We're your hosts, Letty and Angela, and we invite you to join us as we talk about all things running. In this podcast, we talk tips, tactics, and strategies to make running a favorite part of your life. Hey, runners, welcome back to another episode. My name is Letty Lundquist, and I am your host. I hope everybody had a great week of running this week. Um, that you got all your training in, especially those of you who are also trying to run the virtual Boston Marathon. A great experience, it seems, with um, everything, but obviously I'll be going into that once I complete mine and we'll do a race recap. I had mentioned that before. As for my running this week, this should be taper week, but honestly, my training has been off the charts, not happening because as you guys know, I had a little bit of an issue with a plantar fascia. And so, you know, the training runs didn't happen. There was no speed training involved. So as I'd mentioned before, this race will be one of those I will just do to finish, collect my medal and hang it on that great big wall that I have with other medals. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I was able to go do a different type of cross training this week. And by that, I mean, we went wake surfing. And uh, wake surfing is, you know, when you get pulled by the boat on a board. And uh, I did that with my husband. We do have a boat, but we never get to do that because we have two little kids that are two and three years old. And when you go out on the water with the kids, usually it's good to have two parents watch the kids in the boat. When you go wake surfing, one of us has to be in the boat, driving the boat, watching all the mile markers, crab traps, and making sure you don't run the boat aground. And the other person is just out on the water hanging on. So and it makes it really hard to watch children when you do that. But um, yeah, we did that. It was super fun. My husband is uh, a super athlete. And I mean that because anything he picks up, he is able to do it from, you know, wake surfing to snowboarding to running to volleyball, anything athletic. He just is good at it. And um, while that seems to be kind of annoying sometimes, I'm just glad that he's on my team. So it actually helps me become a better athlete myself, too, because he can explain how to do certain things. Anyway, I'm telling you about him because hopefully... I can find a way of bringing him on to the show, either as a guest or help me host this. And um, I think it'd be a lot of fun for him as well. So what else is new with running news? Good news, there are some races that are starting to reappear. Seems to be that they're mostly local 5Ks, 10Ks, and also they seem to be starting up in waves. It's kind of different, and I'm not sure that I would particularly enjoy that race experience because when you do have a race, it's kind of nice to have all your competitors right around you. But for now, I think it's a good alternative, and depending on size, seems to be kind of fun, and a lot of people are signing up for those. Maybe that'll catapult us into having a few race recaps, and I love race recaps. I actually 
wanted to start the podcast and the main reason was I wanted to have race recaps. I love listening to them on other podcasts. I love hearing people's stories about uh, how their experience went. I love hearing about traveling anyway. So if it's a race that's in a different city, different country, all of the above, I just love hearing them. And uh, unfortunately, that's the one thing we're unable to do right now. But we're going to bring you one anyway. We're going to review the virtual Boston Marathon. So if you are running it, then please let me know if you want to have a conversation about it. Obviously, everybody's experience is going to be very different because we all live in different spots of the country and we're running 26.2 miles under different weather conditions, elevation, etc. But that makes it kind of fun at the same time. Another race that I'm going to be reviewing is an ultra race, an unofficial ultra race set up by Joel Stetler, who will be our guest next week on next week's episode. Joel will be running 37 miles for his 37th birthday and doing a fundraiser for Brave Like Gabe Cancer Research. Joel is amazing. I can't wait for you guys to hear his interview. He actually has cancer and has become a big advocate for that mentioned foundation, Brave Like Gape. I'm sure you all have heard about it. Joel will be running his 37 miles at the Art of Life Healing Garden in Fresno. So if you're in the area and want to come out and support or run some miles with him, you can reach out to him. You can find Joel on Instagram. His handle is hey underscore Mr. Underscore Stetler. So um, he also set up a charity that you can find when you go on his page and uh, encourage everybody, of course, to uh, contribute if you can. All right, moving on. We're now going to highlight one of our listeners and read his iTunes review. So this five-star review comes from Josh 43s. And Josh says, fun and fact-filled. I'm enjoying this fun podcast so much. I've learned from each episode and gained running inspiration. Thank you so much, Josh43s. We appreciate you taking the time to leave us a comment. That was very nice of you. And I'm glad that we can educate you with uh, information that we provide in our podcast. That's our goal, as well as provide in inspiration to you. Um, that's exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. So thank you for confirming that we're doing what we had set out to do. So anyhow, now that we've covered our listener review, let's get started with our topic. Today's episode is called How to Run Faster and How It Actually Works. And we're going to talk about everything that you should know about getting faster. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So we'll talk about how to run faster, but not only that, we're also going to let you know what actually goes on with your body so that you will learn why you get faster when you do certain things. So obviously I'm not an expert and could never give you all this information. We have invited an amazing person to our podcast. His name is Dr. Gregory Grosicki. 
He's a PhD and an assistant professor and director of exercise physiology laboratory at Georgia Southern University. His research focuses on exercise and nutritional interventions to improve human performance in a variety of populations from athletes to older adults. His recent work has focused on therapeutic modulation of gut microbiota using diet and or physical activity as a means to enhance health and wellness. A collegiate runner and a Category 2 road cyclist, Greg now competes as an elite amateur triathlete for the Everyman Jack Triathlon team. Particularly notable accomplishments in the multi-sport world include winning the Duathlon World Championship in 2010 and competing in the Ironman World Championship in Kona, Hawaii in 2018. He also resides in in beautiful but very hot at this time of year, Savannah, Georgia, with his wife, Brianna, and his one-year-old daughter, Grace. What he didn't put in his biography is that he also is able to run a 2.45 marathon, which I think is super impressive. So now get ready. I'm going to play you my interview with Dr. Gregory Grosicki. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Gregory Grosicki, who's joining us for our interview today. Thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your running and how you were able to tie all this into your job right now? Yeah, sure. So I'm very lucky, uh, as we were just talking a little bit about offline, that I have a job that messages very well with my passion which is running and endurance exercise. I started running uh, about halfway through high school as a way to become a better soccer player. And then I quickly realized that I was a way better runner than I was a soccer player. And I was actually able to live out my kind of youth dream at, by uh, being an athlete in college, actually as a cross country runner and not a soccer player. And I actually went down to uh, the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida, so just south of where you guys are, um, where I ran uh, for the varsity cross country team there for a year. Um, it was an extremely hot place to, to run 100, 100 to 110 miles a week. Um, and I didn't have necessarily the best freshman year experience. Um, and I, I got kind of injured and I kind of overdid it. Um, and so I actually uh, transferred to be closer to home, which was back in Virginia, to the College of William and Mary, where I thought, oh, maybe I can run there. And then I realized that running collegiately wasn't necessarily for me and it wasn't even necessarily what was going to make me the most healthy and, and able to achieve my best time. So I took up cycling. Um, and it was really my ability to tie my experiences as an athlete, as a runner and a cyclist to what I was learning in the classroom and exercise physiology. I didn't really know what I wanted to study, but I was like, well, it's got to do with exercise and I'm sure I'll love it. And I was, uh, I was like, you know, all the things that I was learning as an athlete, I was, I was like just able to connect so much with what my professors were saying. And I was like, man, if, if there's a career where I can study this stuff for a living, then this is the career for me. And I kind of just kept uh, pursuing that interest, not really having uh, too great of an idea as, as to what would be behind the next door, but through graduate school, uh, my master's at Wake Forest, and then a PhD at Ball State, and then a postdoc at Tufts. And, uh, you know, it just kept opening doors for me. And now I have a dream job at Georgia Southern in uh, Savannah, Georgia, um, where I'm director of the exercise physiology lab. And I teach uh, and do some research. I have, we have a great graduate program with a really fantastic uh, crew of master's students that are super interested in sport and exercise science. 
get to do some really neat experiments and I get to study what, what I absolutely love. Um, and I live here with my wife and my one-year-old daughter, Grace, who has significantly changed my world over the past year. That's awesome. I love how you're able to tie your passion with your job. But um, I have to ask you this because I'm German. What is your favorite soccer team? Uh, I was a big fan of the Arsenal Gunners back when I was, uh, you know, watching and playing soccer. So Okay. So then, um, so then after, run, after studying to run now, you also do triathlons. Do you do Ironman? I've done two Ironman events. Yep. Um, the first was Ironman Louisville, and that would have been in the fall of 2018. And I had just like, like, it's so rare in Ironman, they say when everything goes right, and pretty much almost absolutely everything went right for me in my first time. So I don't know <laughs> if that'll ever happen again. Uh, and I was, you know, fortunate enough to qualify for the world championships in Kona, Hawaii in the fall of 2018. Um, so I got to race in, in Kona, Hawaii, uh, in 2018 and not everything went right there, but when you're racing in a race like that, I think, uh, you're not really worried about everything going right as much as you are just trying to soak up and enjoy the experience. That's awesome. I mean, just, it's an honor to even go out to one of those Ironman, especially when in Kona. Yeah, no, it was, you know, of all the bucket list events as an athlete, I think that's the one that I've always wanted to achieve. So. Right. So what does your training regimen look like? I know we have COVID right now, but if we didn't, would you be primarily training for marathons, halves or, or bike races? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I like to kind of mix it up. And I think that's one of the most important things to um, longevity in the sport is always to pursue what interests us as an athlete and not what we feel like we should be focusing on. Um, and it's something I tell, I coach a bit on the side and it's something I constantly tell my athletes and I try to be receptive to as a coach is like right now, particularly during the COVID pandemic, motivation is like totally down and dwindling for so many of us. And so if there's something that interests us, like running a really fast mile or maybe something totally unrunning related, like improving our cycling power or, you know, uh, working on our swim stroke, I think, um, identifying short-term targets that are in line with something that we're passionate about and then pursuing those is, is, is a great way to be flexible. And, and I always kind of say, you know, success and endurance athletics and running in particular is really dependent on consistency. Um, you know, particularly as a runner, uh, I just got injured so much when I started running and I was just getting injured all the time. And it wasn't until I dialed back and started running slower and founding ways to run consistently that I was ever able to reach anywhere close to my true potential. So, That's some great advice. Your athletes are lucky. So since you know a little bit about it, which is, you know, I contacted you, can you tell us what the four principles are that make you a better and faster or stronger runner? Sure. So I guess it would be managing your distance and optimizing the amount, the volume that you're running. Um, number two, I guess, would be listening to your body. Number three, working speed. Four would be uh, optimizing your speed workouts. Okay. So let's go into these. Uh, when you talk about managing your mileage, how do we do that? And um, why does that work? So can you tell us a little bit about what you would suggest somebody do and then how does that work physiologically in your body? What happens in your body when we do the right thing? Sure. So I feel like um, to start off with, so many of us 
runners are, are totally type A. And so you just want to keep running more and more and more. And I think that's one of the first mistakes that so many of us make is not taking into context what it is we're training for and then what we have going on in our life around us. If we're training for a fast 5K, we don't necessarily need to run, uh, you know, 90 or 100 miles a week. And we're not even necessarily going to run the fastest if we're running 90 or 100 miles a week. But being able to identify, you know, what is a, a good weekly goal mileage and work up slowly to that, uh, you know, something I've always kind of thought was interesting is there's kind of this lore that there's this 10% rule that everyone uses when it comes to increasing our weekly running mileage. And I say lore because it's not based on any scientific evidence whatsoever. Uh, it's just kind of like a rule that some guy threw out there and then everyone's just kind of adhered to. But really when we're increasing our mileage, I think the most important things to consider is what is it that our body can tolerate? You know, what does past experience tell us? And then keeping in mind, and this kind of falls under the second tenet, I guess, is how are we feeling when we're running this mileage? Are we constantly tired? Um, I mean, I know like when I start doing Ironman training and I really ramp up my training, like everything else in life just maybe feels a bit harder, right? Get being functioning at work and, and, <laughs> and being like a, uh, being a dad or a husband. And like, if you're really getting to that point in our running, I think we need to kind of question like, am I even benefiting from all of this volume or, or is it maybe better to dial it back? Um, so I really think the, the mileage thing really fits in very well with, with the second tenant, which is listening to your body. But, you know, when we're increasing our mileage, obviously keep in mind uh, what it is we've, done previously and, and where we've gotten injured and, and, and really pay attention to that because the body is consistent and usually the same patterns will repeat itself over and over. And, uh, you know, if you're running one mile a week, if you're increasing it 10% a week, it's going to be a while before you're even running five miles a week. So going from one mile a week for a couple of weeks to two miles is, you know, in a day is not probably going to be the straw that broke the camel's back there. Right. I've heard of that 10% rule and I've never, I mean, I haven't listened to it because, you know, like you said, most runners are type A and if I want to run a marathon, I'll just ramp up my mileage anyway. And it's luckily knock on wood, not injured me, but I've heard that. And um, I guess I never questioned where it came from. But um, the other thing that you were saying, which I can totally relate to is when you do train for a marathon or you know any longer distance and you do ramp up your mileage to 60 miles or so when you usually do maybe 40 you do feel more fatigued so if that happens is that not something that's inevitable and you kind of should just power through it and get used to it or should you at that point when you're questioning that and listening to your body what should your response be yeah so there's definitely a you know a threshold amount of stress that body is willing to or, or can accept. Um, and that's going to be different for everybody. And there's subjective and objective indicators um, that we can use to gauge that type of thing. You know, something I'll like to do is when I am ramping things up, maybe, and, and yeah, if, if you're not stressing the body, it's not going to feel that additional level of fatigue. So certainly some of that is necessary, but I do like to do kind of like a step, you know, couple steps up and then maybe take a step back just to allow the body to get a bit refreshed after it's been stressed with that additional for example if you go from 45 to 55 miles a week um, maybe I do a couple weeks to 55 and then let's do an off week and balance it back to 40 or 50 before we go back up to 55 and sometimes just that one down week 
will be enough recovery that by the time we click back up to the 55, the body will actually be willing to accept that uh, increase in mileage. Okay, that makes complete sense. So what goes on in our bodies when we do that? Why does it make us stronger to run more? So how are we able to adapt our bodies to a higher mileage? And why does that make us stronger slash faster? Yeah. So if you look at really the, you know, physiology of running performance, there have been kind of three factors uh, physiologically that can be measured that are going to be impacted by training that are going to contribute to improvements in race performance. Um, the first of which we would refer to as our VO2 max or the amount of oxygen that we can consume. And if I was to just compare that to anything, it would really be how big is the engine in the tank? So, uh, um, you know, how big is, how big is the engine? And the bigger the engine, theoretically, the faster the car or the vehicle, or in this case, the human can go. And we can, uh, we know that that VO2 max uh, value or, or, or is quite plastic and it can increase 20 to 30% with training. Um, now, in most people, after the first three to six months of training, VO2 max, if they're training seriously, is going to kind of plateau out a little bit. Um, and after that, where we're seeing the most pronounced changes, because obviously if we're preparing for a race two or three months, isn't going to optimize our performance is really how high can we idle that and how high can we sustain that engine? So can we run, uh, let's say for two hours at maybe 60 or 70% of our VO2 max. And then if we train more, we may be able to hold 70 or 80% of our VO2 max for two hours. And then if we're an elite athlete, we can hold maybe 90%. So the size of the engine is one of the variables. But another one that's really going to be important is what percent, you know, how much uh, horsepower can we sustain? Um, and so that's another one that, that, that that's going to be changed. Now, the VO2 max is primarily going to be determined by the uh, cardiovascular system, so the ability of the heart to deliver oxygen to the muscles, whereas the latter or the percent of VO2 max that we can sustain is going to be more contingent on the uh, energy producing and oxygen utilizing capabilities of the skeletal muscle, which we know is far more adaptable than the engine. And so changes in that, that VO2 max threshold can continue to accrue um, over a much longer training duration. And, and so that's a, another thing that's going to change. And then finally, the last variable that's really going to have a, a significant impact on our running performance is uh, really our running economy. And, and so that would be more akin to, um, you know, looking at car, different types of cars, comparing like a, a Prius to a, you know, something that's less fuel efficient, a Corvette. Uh, it might be extremely fast, but it's not very efficient. And so I, I think we've all, you know, anyone listening to this at the very least has seen a, a lot of runners and you see these really elite runners. And I think one of the things that's immediately characteristic, even running down the road, all, you know, as a runner, you have to look at the run. And it's like, that guy's got pretty good form. And when we talk about that, that's what we're really referring to as the economy or how much oxygen is it taking to move forward? And people who are really economical are simply going to move faster. And that's another one that can be substantially altered by volume and particularly the, the higher mileage 
um, we just become so much more economical and efficient in our, in our, in our movement. So we can move faster at a given, uh, a given energy input. So our body or brains are muscles just kind of adapt they're used to running a lot so eventually if you're running you know with your arms swinging you'll learn automatically okay i'm going to keep my arms right by my body and things of that nature is that what you're talking about exactly that's that's exactly what we're talking about you know totally flailing around so if you watch most elite distance runners even comparing like a sprinter to an elite distance runner you know sprinters have the big arm drive through as they're you know usain bolt trying to propel himself down the track Versus if you watch an elite distance runner, most of them have their arms kind of stationary by their sides and they're just very little movements because the arm movement isn't really doing that much to help propel yourself forward, but it is expending excess energy that's not contributing to your movement in a linear direction. Right. Okay, perfect. So we have those three factors, the VO2 max, the percentage, and then the running economy. So that makes more sense now. So um, going back to you were saying that the VO2 max can plateau at around six months. So what happens when you do various marathon cycles? So say you have a spring marathon and then you have a little bit of time off in the summer and then you want to do a fall marathon. What happens um, when you approach that second cycle, even if you were to just dumb it down and have the same type of training, what happens um, within your body? Yeah. So it would, it would ultimately be dictated by how much you altered your training, of course. But I mean, I think it's even beneficial for people to after a big race. And I, I definitely strongly encourage both myself as well as any of the athletes I work with. Uh, and sometimes I have to try to give them, uh, you know, alternative things to do to keep their minds occupied so that they won't run or bike or swim. Um, but it, I think it's strongly encouraged to take like a downtime after racing because, uh, and really the same thing with training goes, polarity of training is, is going to be really important. And, and we're not going to lose that much. And there's data showing this, some detraining data from uh, Ed Coyle at the University of Texas that, that we don't really lose that much in one week, we lose almost nothing. And even in two weeks of totally no running, which most runners, you know, it's like they get back after two weeks. It's like, Oh, all fitness is lost. Like time to start over from block one, like very little, you know, 5% of fitness may be lost in that much time. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. It's really very minimal. I mean, unless we like really go to town on, you know, the Doritos and beer <laughs> and wine and stuff. Right. But, uh, it very little of fitness is going to be lost in a two week period. Um, so, you know, in different training cycles, our VO2 max is fluctuating maybe a little bit, but we really are working on improving. I think those other two factors are where the most uh, gains are going to be observed. And, and there are different training programs, even after VO2 max plateaus that, um, you know, we can play around with, with some different programs that may even be able to bump it up a little bit in people who have kind of reached that plateau. But most of the gains are coming from the percent of VO2 max in the economy. Okay. Um, all right. So before we move on to the adding speed to your long run, what are your thoughts on uh, the difference in mileage in that case? So running a marathon off of eight weeks of training of 80 miles versus per week versus running it off of 40 miles per week. Why does that work so well? So I'm honestly a big proponent of maybe running lower mileage, to be totally honest with you. Um, but you know, theoretically the higher mileage, the greater stimulus you're putting on the body and thus you're able to incur more physiological adaptation. I mean, certainly the way training works is, uh, you know, theoretically 
you're going to get out what you put in. And if, if indeed that's, that's working, your training is, is effective. Um, then you're going to get out more if you're investing more si uh, simple as that. So if you're running 80 miles a week, but the question that I think a lot of people, and this is the problem that a lot of people run into is, are they getting out what they're putting in with that 80 miles a week? And it's so inter-individual where some individuals can accommodate that and they can get, get out what they put in, but other individuals will do much better at 40 to 60 miles a week or, or even less. Because you feel like it um, makes them more fatigued that their bodies can't adjust to it. Is that way? Exactly. Uh, you know, for an elite athlete who is taking naps during the day and able to do things to, you know, tune ups, foam roll and, um, take naps and get more sleep and isn't dealing with stressors at work 80 to hundred miles a week, or even a college athlete might not be a super big deal. But for most of us who are working, you know, 40 hours a week and have significant others and kids, uh, and paying bills and other life stressors, uh, it's very, very easy to dip across the line of diminishing returns or possibly even deleterious returns with the high mileage gain. No, that makes complete sense. <laughs> All right. So um, can you also talk to me now about your third principle, which was adding speed to your long runs? Um, what kind of speed work should a person add and um, why does this work? Yeah, sure. So one of the things um, that I think we often forget about, right? Everyone talks about this long, slow distance, but if you're running a marathon, then you're not running, hopefully, you might be running long, but hopefully you're not running slow. Um, and so, you know, it really comes back to the whole, you know, practice like you want to race. And one of the things that physiologically happens as we run a longer distance is we can accumulate neuromuscular fatigue, basically the ability of the brain to tell the body to run faster may kind of wear down. And so by you know, practicing like we want to race and integrating speed into our long runs, we can train our body to perform when it's a little bit tired. And that's going to be highly advantageous for a race for people who are starting off. Um, or even right now when there aren't any races, I like to do things just like go for a long run and then, um, you know, maybe do some strides at the end of the run or, or possibly to mix things up. Um, something I'll do with my athletes frequently is, uh, just to go for like, you know, a 10 or 15 mile run, maybe if I'm working with a marathon runner or, or long distance athlete. And then the last point one of every mile, I tell them to really pick it up and run it fast, maybe close to half marathon pace, and then do a little walk jog before settling back in, maybe just to regular pace or even something like integrated strides within the long run, um, you know, 10 rounds of, of 30 second pickups at about half marathon perceived exertion. So nothing overly laborious, but then falling right back in to just your distance run pace. And, and you're really just, you know, from a broad perspective, training and teaching the body that it can run fast, even if it is a bit fatigued. Okay, so then um, those increments, as that person that you're coaching gets closer to his or her marathon, do you have them become longer or how are the athletes able to sustain that faster speed for a longer time? Yeah, that's a good question. So yeah, after someone gets used to running uh, a little bit more speed um, in their long runs and I feel comfortable that they can accommodate the weekly run mileage without getting injured, I will start integrating 
um, you know, more traditional, if you will, type speed workout within their long runs. Um, you know, things like progressive runs, I think, are generally really good for confidence building. Um, and, you know, to put that simply, it's just uh, we we'll usually start out pretty easy and, and then pick it up, pick up the pace every one mile or two miles as we get, as we get to it. And maybe we'll finish um, a little bit under a little bit under race pace. And that's actually, um, you know, the people who have gone and watched the Kenyans run, that's kind of how they run. They'll start off running nine or 10 minutes a mile. And by the end they're running, you know, down close to five. So these progression runs are great. And then, you know, I also feel like there's a really pretty important value if we're working on something like uh, a marathon, teaching the body to run what our goal marathon pace is. And so, um, just an ex- as an example, if, uh, if we're trying to run an eight minute mile for our marathon, then we may start out by doing something like, uh, you know, two by four mile or two by three mile at that eight minute per mile pace with a couple minutes of rest in between. And then, and then slowly as we get closer to our marathon, you know, maybe we're running, uh, a, a 16 or an 18 mile long run with 10 or 12 of those miles at our goal marathon pace. One to teach the body, to run that pace. I think, um, particularly on marathon day, it's really easy to fall into the trap of going out too fast and running too fast. Um, but it also tends to, if, if appropriately, uh, put into the training program, I think it can really build the confidence of the athletes. It's like, Oh, I just run 12 miles of marathon pace and I didn't feel bad at all. So that when they get there on race, sometimes that that happens other times they're like, Oh wow, I just ran 10 miles of marathon pace and couldn't run another. Um, right. But, uh, Ideally, it's going to build their confidence up. They can, they feel like they can sustain that. Okay. And so then normally that is something we're able to, if we did the hard run at 12 miles, do you think that's possible to sustain it for the remainder of the 14.2 miles? Well, it, it would certainly depend. I mean, it, it would depend on what type of effort it was, right? Um, if it felt like an all out effort, then absolutely no way. But right. Like an 85% effort then. Yeah. And then just like, you know, being honest with yourself, that's another good way to measure what it is we can do is by practicing it. Right. So if we think our marathon pace is going to be a seven thirty mile and we run 12 miles at it. And by the end, you know, we're all out totally gassed. Uh, that's a pretty good indication that we're probably not going to run a seven thirty mile on the marathon. So it's best to dial back our expectations. Right. Or I guess, could you consistently try to do the, if you had enough time, the 12 miles week after week after week till it doesn't feel hard anymore. Is that something that's good? I probably wouldn't recommend doing it week after week after week. Cause then we're basically constantly putting our body right at, right at its limit. But uh, we could certainly experiment with it as the training cycle progressed. All right. So then you also said, um, well, your last and fourth principle was to do separate speed workouts. Um, why would you do them separate and what kind are they and what happens to our bodies when we do those? Yeah. So it's also important to, if we really want to work on our higher end and and bump up that threshold or the the pace that we can run to do speed workouts removed from our distance runs, Um, just because we want our body not only to learn how to run fast under fatigue, but we want to teach our body to run fast when it feels fresh. Um, So, you know, keeping speed workouts separate. Um, And also those are going to be, you know, if, if appropriately structured, Sure, those could be what really bump up that kind of more stagnant VO2 max level would, would be those speed workouts. And it will be 
you know, particularly important if we're focusing on, you know, even shorter distance events to do a, a, a separate speed workout during the week. Um, when I, you know, after I built up a sufficient base, I, I'll usually like, you know, and I feel comfortable running a, a given volume. You, you never want to increase volume and add in speed the same week. You're going to do one or the other. So after I've, I'm comfortable with a certain volume and I feel like I'm not going to get injured, I'll start with some, you know, things that are probably very easy uh, or, or relatively easy, one minute on, one minute off, you know, 10 of those, or, or, and then followed by 10 by 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, um, just running hard and running easy and just getting used to running hard. But then, you know, more traditional speed workouts, things like 800s, one mile or, or, or two mile repeats, tempo runs, you know, five or six miles at, at you know, half marathon pace, things of that nature um are, are great for just building up that higher end okay wonderful um that, those are great do you have any um additional ones must do tips from personally you for people to get faster yeah uh i think if i were to give and i've kind of hit on this point a little bit throughout our conversation i feel like but if i were to you know I've worked with a lot of different athletes and I, I know myself and I think the one thing I've learned uh, seeing it in other people and doing it in myself is that um, getting faster is often going to like the, the number one thing to get faster is probably to run slower. Um, and, and why I say that, what I mean is, is I'm really stressing the import, the importance of periodizing our training. So if you're, easy days aren't easy, then your hard days are never going to be hard. And the whole purpose of the hard days, those are the days that we're actually stressing the body and, and trying to get faster. And the easy days, that's when the getting faster is actually going on. And it, it's just so easy to become absorbed with um, running a certain pace uh, that we just, you know, it's like, oh, like for, for the longest time, I felt like if I went out for a run and I didn't run, people are going to hate me when I say this, but if I didn't run under seven minutes a mile for my, for my run, it was like that run was pretty much a waste. Um, and it wasn't until I let go of that and like, and now I've been surrounded, you know, I live a life where I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by professional athletes and I've seen the way they train and, you know, I, I watch them run eight or eight thirty or even nine minute miles on their easy days. And then people wonder, it's like, well, how is that guy running four and five minute miles on his hard days? And it's like, well, be, it's because when he's running on his easy days, he's running an eight or nine minute mile. Like he's really going easy. It probably does feel like a walk to him. And so I think stressing the importance of recovery. And there was even a recent study that was out of Scandinavia that showed this. They had athletes do the same volume of high intensity work, but they either did it in two days so that it was a little bit longer training sessions broken over two days where they had them do a little bit shorter sessions and they broke it over four days and they actually showed greater improvements in, in physiology and performance in the athletes who separated their high intensity training um, by a greater number of days and, and, and only trained hard twice a week. And they showed that training hard twice a week was better for optimizing performance than training hard four times a week. And so I think really keeping that in mind um, that if we don't go easy, we're never going to be able to go hard. Uh, and, and also, you know, kind of from the same vein that 
going easy is also what's going to allow us to be consistent with our running. Um, and if we're not consistent, like, you know, whenever I've had my fastest running, I've, it's cause I've been running for able to run for six months to a year without getting injured. And I think we need to see the trend there rather than be worried about what our friends are going to say when we post our runs on Strava, maybe. I know Strava is so bad for that. It's, it's exactly like you say, you run your easy run and then you post it and you're like, oh man, that's like, I'm at an almost nine minute mile. <laughs> but but yeah. no, thank you so much. Um, well, now I have to ask that you were saying when you're mentioning your speed. So what are your marathon times? Yeah. Um, so my fastest marathon was a, is a 245. Um, I've run like, I don't know how many, a couple marathons, six or seven maybe. Seven or eight, maybe if you count ones in Ironman. Um, and in Ironman, I ran I ran three twelve, I think, or three thirteen at Louisville. So I was pretty stoked about that. That's um, blazing fast! Oh my gosh, I can't imagine running that fast, but then also having to swim and bike on top of that. I mean, obviously you're, you know, listening to yourself and um, incorporating what you were just telling us. So that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. All right, so um. How can people get in touch with you if they want to either have a, have a couple questions for you or, or if they're interested in coaching or anything like that? Yeah, sure. So you can find me on Twitter or Instagram. It's Dr. Greg Grosicki, and no one's going to be able to spell that. So maybe you could put it in the show notes. Maybe. I will definitely do that. Um, and then uh, if you want to send me an email, I'm, I'm pretty responsive to email, so I'd be happy to try to answer that. Um, it's G J and then grossicky at gmail.com. Um, but I'd be happy to, uh, try to help out or answer any questions you may have there as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Craig. And, um, what's next for you? What's, uh, what's the first thing you're going to do once the races open up? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, you know, uh, I entered Ironman Texas this past year and it got canceled. Um, so that was a pretty big bummer. So I'm, I'm technically entered that for April next year. Um, but it's like kind of the same weekend as Boston, which now I realize I have another shot at. And honestly, right now the appeal of being a single sport athlete is somewhat growing on me. So we'll see if I decide to try to register for Boston here in September and go race that. I have a lot of friends in Boston too. Um, maybe that would be a good way to get out of doing an Ironman April. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, if you do, we have to link up because I'm hoping that my cushion, which I'm sure it will, I have a 15-minute cushion and hopefully oh, awesome. it'll get me in this year, even though it'll consider taking the last two years of people. So <laughs> did you, uh, so did you run it this year or was it from two years ago? I ran or one in Chicago, but then I was one of the last ones. I ran the LA Marathon yeah. this year and I qualified almost so the same time. Awesome. Yeah, man, I'm just hoping it happens in, in April. I guess we'll see. All right. Well, thank you, Gregory. Of course. Thank you. Have a good night. Yep, you too. All right. This was my interview with the amazing Dr. Gregory Grosicki. And as mentioned, we're going to put his name and email address in the show notes so that way you can contact him directly or follow him on Instagram if you would like. 
And Greg, to you, thanks again so much for coming onto our podcast and giving us the amazing insight that you did and basically explaining to us in a nutshell and in very understandable terms how our bodies work. So that way we don't just put in the work without thinking about it. We can also know why certain things will work. And I believe we should always question it because if needed be, we can tweak our training to where it can still benefit us. So before we come to an end, we're going to move on to our last segment, which is our segment with Australian physiotherapist Brody Sharp, who comes on every week and answers one of our listeners' questions. So let's make this phone call. Hi, Brody. Welcome back to our podcast. How are you doing? I'm very good, lady. How are you? Wonderful. Thanks for coming on again. And uh, we have a few listener questions for you again, if you're ready. Yeah, it's my pleasure. All right. So we have Stephanie Lin and she says, what about shin splints? I get them in my right leg only. I've tried different shoes. I let it heal for a long time, more than six months before running again. I'm increasing my distance slowly and I'm still getting them and only in that one leg. Okay. All uh, right. Uh, so Stephanie, um, yes, shin splints are very common amongst runners. Um, I would probably, my first thing would be, okay, is it a correct diagnosis? Is it actually shin splints? Because there are a couple of other diagnoses that could happen if it's the front of the shin, but let's just say it is an accurate diagnosis. It's very, very common for shin splints to be on the inside border of the shin. So if that's, uh, where you are experiencing a lot of your symptoms, then um, it's an increased likelihood that it's shin splints. Um, this is a, a problem that I, I see quite often. And it's once someone establishes an injury, they're like, oh, I need to um, back off. Maybe I've increased my running too much. Um, let me just give it time to heal. And they spend some time off and hope that the symptoms improve. And what I often see is that shin splints are like a... a a load to the bone sort of issue. It's like a spike in the load to the bone and strengthening can definitely help. A lot of the evidence when it comes to shin splints is strengthen the calf, particularly the, the soleus muscle, which is a, a deep uh, muscle within the calf. And that can help establish like a, it almost supports the shin when you run. And looking at Stephanie's question and seeing that she's had six months of no running to try and let it heal, um, what happens with that also is the muscles around the, the shin get quite weak as well. And the inability to support the shin when you do run uh, diminishes as you have extended times off running. So my question for Stephanie would be along the lines of, okay, have you been doing an active rehab? Have you sought out physical therapy? Have you done a lot of calf strengthening specifically of uh, the soleus muscle and has that been incorporated with a slow return to run? Because generally speaking, if there's a correct diagnosis, that would be the most effective management moving forward. So it's strengthening and then a, a proper return to run. And it does seem like she is um, slowly returning to running after an extended time off, but I'm not too sure if she's mentioned anything about strengthening. She hasn't. So if that is the case, could you give her a few strengthening exercises that she could do? Definitely. Um, it's good if you have access to a gym with this one because, uh, well, it's hard to come by these days, but if you were to do calf raises, 
that definitely works the calf really well. But if you were to, if you wanted to bias this soleus muscle, which is really important for shin splints, it's good to do seated calf raises or calf raises with your knee bent at 90 degrees. So um, most people can recognize a calf raise machine at a gym where you have to sit down. And so if you can imagine sitting down on a chair with your um, knees at 90 degrees and the weights are stacked on your knees and then you're doing calf raises, that is uh, a biased exercise towards the soleus muscle. And that can help um, if you build up that strength and you really, really work on building up that strength of that exercise then you're working your, your soleus muscle, you're strengthening your soleus muscle, and that can help offload the stress that's applied to the shin when you run. Awesome. Thanks, Brody. And if uh, any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? I am pretty active on Instagram. So Brody.sharp is my Instagram handle and my Facebook group, the Run Smarter Podcast. They can reach out there um, and say hi. Just reach out and say um, any other qualifying All right, Brody, thank you so much again for your time and taking the time to answer one of our listeners' questions. And if any of you guys have any kind of injury or question about your body and physical therapy, please send us a message and we will have it be reviewed by Brody and hopefully have him answered on the air. All right, you guys, we've now reached the end of this episode I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you learned something and good luck on all your runs and virtual races. If anybody is running Boston again, let us know and hopefully we get to talk to you about your experience. I'm going to leave you with a mantra this week and the mantra is a short run is better than no run. So hopefully that'll help you get out of the door and until next time, stay healthy and enjoy your runs. Thanks for listening to this episode. As always, we hope that we were able to provide you with something of value. Make sure you like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram. Our account you can find under WGTR Podcast. Thanks. Until next time, have a great week of running.